welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's your host here, Shadi Nabhan, hematologist and medical oncologist, and I am interested in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. You can check out all of my podcasts and all of uh, the videos of these podcasts on my website, www.shadinabhan.com. I appreciate your support. And today's podcast is about precision oncology, but we really are going to discuss whether randomized controlled trials are necessary and important in the era of precision oncology. It's interesting because we are now in an era where we can really direct therapy to the right patient at the right time, but really targeting a particular biomarker or a particular uh, genomic aberration if a drug exists against that genomic aberration. What has been what has transpired is how do you really design clinical trials in the era of precision medicine or precision oncology? Do you always need a prospective randomized controlled trial to actually tell if you need to use that precise therapy against standard of care or standard chemotherapy? Or can you really bypass a randomized controlled trial? I have two opposing views on today's podcast. Dr. Christopher Booth from Queens in Kingston a professor and policy researcher, GI oncologist, who is really extremely articulate, thoughtful. I've had him on this podcast before. You have listened to him and seen him on the podcast. Very thoughtful and very articulate. And he really proposes that all patients must undergo randomized controlled trials, even in the era of precision oncology. There are obviously a few exceptions, but for the most part, this is his belief. On the opposing side, I have doctors Vivek Subaya from MD Anderson, Cancer Center and Dr. Razel Kurzrak, who has been on this podcast with me previously discussing precision oncology. Dr. Kurzrak is a professor at Medical College of Wisconsin. She is also the CMO of the WIN Consortium. She has done amazing work in the era of precision oncology. And I am going, I went on record telling her that she needs to write a book about her experience over the past couple of decades. And Dr. Vivek Subaya, Associate Subaya, Associate Professor at MD Anderson and the lead of the experimental therapeutics program and has really been pioneer in leading in getting many drugs approved by the FDA. These are targeted therapies and targeted drug. These three scholars are going to discuss on my podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered, the value and the importance of clinical trials in the era of precision oncology. As you know, on Healthcare Unfiltered, we host debates. Debates are important, timely, and critical. This is the debate of the decade, and I appreciate you tuning in. Oh, and before I let you go, before I air the episode, by the way, don't forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search uh, for justice. This book depicts the stories behind the first trials against Monsanto and their herbicide product Roundup linked to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I testified as an expert witness on behalf of the patients in these three trials all of which were won by the patients. Check out the book. It's a story pertaining to what actually happened during these trials. And I certainly hope that you are going to enjoy your read. So Ray, we have to start with you, of course. This is your second time on the podcast, which is great because I have not messed up yet, which is good. So a little bit about you. 
Well, thank you for inviting me. And also, um, I'm uh, very happy to be doing this debate. Um, so my uh, expertise is clinical trials and uh, precision medicine. I currently oversee the uh, clinical trials enterprise and uh, precision medicine and rare cancer clinic at Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, before that, I uh, was uh, at University of California, San Diego, where I did many things, but the thing closest to my heart were uh, the patients in the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapy. And before that, I was at MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, where I did my fellowship, rose to the ranks and became a department chair for the uh, early phase uh, Department of Investigational Cancer Therapeutics. I'll mention one more thing. Um, since uh, Chris Booth is on, I'm from Canada. And I grew up in Toronto, and I went to medical school in Toronto as well. Um, so you may not have known that, but uh, share that little tidbit. Hey, Ray, were you responsible for the awful decision of like hiring somebody like Vivek Subaya or something like? Are you how 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 involved were you in that decision? Uh, so I was the department chair, and I hired Vivek Subaya oh as God. a fellow, and he's just uh, done an amazing job as yeah. a leader and a pioneer. Um, one of my best uh, decisions ever. We all make mistakes, okay, right? It's okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we don't want his head to explode. Um, so, uh, Vivek, uh, welcome back to the show. A little bit about you. Thank you so much again, uh, Shadi, uh, for having me back. That means I haven't messed up in the last, maybe how many times have I been? Have this I been? is your fourth time, not bad. Fourth time, yeah, not bad. I haven't messed up. Uh, thank you for having me. And um, uh, so it's it's a pleasure and honor to be here. I'm a medical oncologist and a pediatric oncologist uh, by training. And I am an early phase uh, clinical trialist and a precision medicine expert. I work in the Investigational Cancer Therapeutics, which is an early phase clinical trials program at MD Anderson, and also the Center Medical Director for the Clinical Center for Targeted Therapy at MD Anderson, also the Executive Medical Director for Medical Oncology Research for the MD Anderson Cancer Network. So in my the last decade, uh, and I had, you know, MD Anderson is a phenomenal place, you know, with, with inspiring leaders like Dr. Kazrak, Dr. Freireich, to name a few. Again, we've been very successful in this drug development program, and I personally have uh, led several drugs to FDA approval, rare diseases, biomarker diseases, without a randomized study in a handful of patients, less than 25 patients, we've been able to get drugs approved without randomized studies using high response rates in orphan diseases. Great. Now that we're going to talk about that, uh, that's uh, one of the crux of the issues to discuss. Chris, welcome back to the show. I appreciate you coming back. So um, you can't say, I was going to say you're the sole Canadian on the show, but now we can't say that. So a little bit about you. Thanks, Chadi. Thanks for having me back. I look forward to the discussion. And Ray, I did know you were Canadian. And so I knew that despite the antics of our co-colleagues here, Vivek and Chadi, if they got really out of control, at least half of the participants are Canadian. So there'll be some level of, you know, we're very polite in Canada. So I knew that, that we'd be true. in check. We'll keep the other two in check. Um, so I'm a uh, medical oncologist and a professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. I uh, did my training in Toronto, uh, where Ray's from at Princess Margaret Hospital. And uh, so in my clinical practice, I look after patients with GI cancer. And my academic work, um, my early days, actually, I was a research fellow in clinical trials uh, methods at the Canadian Cancer Trials Group. 
So I started in that space and then very early in my career pivoted to health services research. So for over a decade, I ran a large program in population-based outcome research using cancer registries to look at issues of access, quality, and outcomes in the real world. Um, but all along the way, I've always been interested in the concept of magnitude of benefit, what matters to patients, where we're going in our field, some of the really big picture questions about what's working in oncology and perhaps some of our blind spots and things that we need to conceptualize moving forward. And I guess the last piece that's relevant is when it comes to considering evidence and benefit, both at the individual and population level, I've had the privilege to work quite extensively overseas and more recently in the last five years as a, have a policy role at the WHO with the World Health Organization Essential Medicine List, where we spend a lot of time carefully considering using different value frameworks and levels of evidence and the magnitude of benefit scales to understand where we're going in our field and which treatments actually make a big difference for patients. So I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, and thanks, Chris. I, I, I've told you this before, I'm a big fan of your work. <clears throat> and I also what I like about your work is you're really very thoughtful, even in the way you criticize other people's work. Like you really do your best to understand both sides as you make a, as you make an opinion. So the goal of this is, look, precision oncology um, is upon us. First, I'd like for all of us to agree on the definition, what we mean by that, because sometimes the word is used and abused. Second, I'd like us to understand, uh, is clinical trial design should change? I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to learn it's phase one, phase two, phase three, randomized control trial and so on. But Things may change, and we'd like to know about this. And Vivek wrote a very nice paper that I read several weeks ago that I thought it was very interesting. Was that it was in Nature Medicine, right, uh, Vivek? It was very nice. Yeah. So, Chris, in your own words, when you hear the word precision oncology, tell me what you think of, and do you think it's overhyped, or do you think it's appropriate? Yeah, I mean, I think my co-guests have probably thought even more deeply about this than I am because they really are leaders in the space. But I mean, I would conceptualize this as therapy that's targeted for the cancer at hand. And I mean, this isn't perhaps as new as uh, many people would imagine. You know, our predecessors were doing this with, um, you know, hormone-directed therapy for many years. And so I think obviously that's evolved and exploded as we've learned more about the biology of cancer. And, uh, you know, leaders in our field like Ray and Vivek have kind of pioneered a number of new molecular approaches to targeting this. And there clearly have been uh, some home runs, but I'm not sure that we're quite ready to kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater and forget some of the principles uh, with uh, which we advance so far in oncology. So um, I guess it, we can also acknowledge that we've shifted away from personalized medicine to precision oncology. And I think the idea, you know, we've always tried to tailor our care to the individual person, but precision oncology, I think, is taking it to the molecular level. Ray, do you agree with that definition? Is that a reasonable start? I agreed with uh, much of what Chris said, but not completely. So what precision medicine is defined as is we understand precisely uh, what is wrong, what is driving a tumor, and then we match the therapy to an individual. And then as we've done testing on tumors, we've learned that they're what I call akin to malignant snowflakes. I'm from Canada, so I compare things to snowflakes. It is unique in its crystal structure and very complicated, and that's true of tumors as well at the molecular level. So that means that in order to be precise, we have to personalize or individualize therapy. That is really a very dramatic um, 
departure from the way uh, we have treated cancer in the past and from the way we have done clinical trials where we treated uh, populations of patients in the same way. And if we used, you, if we reached a certain threshold response rate, uh, that treatment would go on to approval. Um, this opens up um, a whole new possible paradigm for looking at cancers in a very individualized way. Okay, I think we, you're probably closer than not in terms of how you define it. The question is, there are lots of targets and there are lots of drugs, but sometimes they don't match. So Vivek, we have we we identify a lot of targets, but we don't have drugs to each target, and we identify a lot of drugs that may not have a target. In designing clinical trials, how do you decide whether you're going to do a phase one, two, three, because that's really the crux of the, I guess, the disagreement. Do we need a phase three randomized control trial to approve target therapies? Uh, thanks, Shadi. I think uh, the, the question here is, I think we agree with the definition of, let's go back and agree with the definition of precision oncology. Precision oncology is to offer the right drug for the right patient at the right time. So this has been enabled mainly by uh, clinical availability of next-gen sequencing and blood-based uh, genomic technologies. So uh, we've been, yeah, 20 years ago, they said we can't sequence a human genome. Then uh, the costs of a single human genome uh, dropped in a breathtaking manner from $3 billion to we can get it for less than $100 to $100. So hundreds of actionable genes have been discovered in the last two decades. Thousands of new drugs have been developed with novel mechanisms of actions, uh, genomically targeted therapies, immunotherapies. You know, the scientific advances has been breath breathtaking. Genomics, immunology, proteomics, metabolism, gut microbiomics, epigenovirology, in big data science, AI, everything is, you know, giving us, uh, and CRISPR as well, CRISPR-Cas9 technologies, is giving us a tantalizing array of opportunities to elevate precision medicine. So in this era, with so much of overload of information and information about that single patient in front of us, we need to evolve study designs. We need to evolve from uh, the, the precept that every drug should be vetted through a randomized study for every disease and for every biomarker. I think that's where, uh, uh, you know, again, Dr. Kazra can comment on this more. But, you know, every drug, precision oncology drug does not need to be vetted we are randomized. But Chris, Chris, despite these advances, should we migrate away from the principles? I mean, some might argue, well, it's great, kudos, we're happy, but the principles of what we what got us here should remain. I mean, uh, do you agree with Vivek that we don't need to do these trials because we have all of these advances? No, I mean, I think I would actually argue quite strongly on the other side. So, uh, I mean, I agree. I think that precision oncology, it, the aspiration of it and the intent of it is that we know enough about a person's tumor, and that's an if, right? So we need to know all of the molecular problems, um, which may or may not be distrib distributed evenly throughout the tumor that's sampled in the biopsy. I mean, Ray and Vivek know more about this than I do. So there's an if that we need to know what makes up that person's tumor. And then we need to have the appropriate drug or drugs to target that. And I think that there certainly have been 
major home runs or transformational advances in our field on the basis of precision oncology. And in those handful of circumstances, I would completely agree um, with my colleagues that uh, you know the need for a comparative trial in the phase three setting may be lessened and may not be necessary. But I, I would argue that the default still should be we need to compare treatments against an, against an existing standard. And the reason I say that is because we've learned through the history of medicine that most of our treatments don't work. The reality is, you know, our predecessors 10 and 20 years ago and 30 years ago, they also thought they were at the cutting edge of science. So I think we also need to re retain a little bit of scientific humility and recognize that nature is hard, biology is hard, and we're making major advances, but most of our treatments won't work. And so I think that's why we need to, the default position is to do a comparative trial to um, assure ourselves that there's benefit and that we understand the relative toxicities of these new agents. So Chris, I'm gonna throw uh, uh, an example. I'm gonna have Ray and Vivek comment on that, just uh, an example. Um, and again, I'm not part of the debate, but my view of this is that to have a randomized control trial between arm A and arm B, you should be able to look your patient in the eye and tell him or her, I don't know if arm A or arm B are better. They may be the same. Arm A may be better. Arm B may be better. Hence, we have this randomized control trial, and you go through the safety and all of these things. But you as a clinician, Chris Booth, as a clinician, based on your knowledge, based on preclinical data, based on your understanding of the science, based on preliminary studies, whatever it is, if you deep inside think that arm A could be better or arm B could be better, in my opinion, you cannot enroll that patient on a clinical trial. So in order to have an RCT, you must be convinced as a clinician that these arms you, that you literally do not know which one is better. And I think as a, I put myself as a patient, if I have mutation X, let's say I have a RET fusion, whatever it is, and there's a drug out there that you're telling me it targets the RET, heck, I want that drug. I don't want to get a placebo or I want to get cytoxin. So Chris, what do you think? Am I crazy? I mean, I think there are circumstances, you know, it's the kind of classic paradigm of, you know, smart cancers or smart tumors and dumb tumors. And there are going to be circumstances where the early phase data is so compelling that investigators and clinicians will lack equipoise. But I think, Chatty, I push back a little bit on the concept of equipoise. And there's a continuum there. It's impossible to imagine that in RCTs, the phase three level, all the investigators think it's a 50-50 chance the new drug is going to be better. OK, it's not 50 50. And, you know, where's that threshold? Is it 55, 45? You know, if, if it's a 99 percent gut feeling that this is the right treatment for the patient, I think all of us would agree. Probably there must be some such compelling data. Let's just move on. So it's not as simple as saying, you know, are you are you sure that they're equivalent? Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, we've been using targeted therapies for 20 years. And the reality is most of them either haven't worked or the benefits have been very, very modest. And so we need to remember that, you know, all the explosive technology we have today, I think in 10 or 20 years, will also look very backwards. 
And so we're going to learn more and more in the coming decades. And we think we know a lot now. We're going to know even more in 10 or 20 years. And I still do think that it would be a disservice to our patients if we were unable to look them in the eye later after the trial and tell them, I know that this is the best treatment for you. I know what the side effects are. And I know what the relative benefits are compared to the alternatives. And in many cases, we would lose out on that. Let, uh, let me hear from Ray and then Vivek. So um, I'm going to disagree. I'm probably the oldest in the group. Uh, so I've been around um, oncology for a while. And uh, the first 20 years that I did oncology, there, there's no question we needed randomized controlled trials uh, because uh, both treatments were kind of equally crappy um, or equally good, uh, mostly equally crappy, if I want to be completely honest. So um, we needed to do a randomized trial because we really could not tell the difference uh, between the two treatments. Um, I think we're in a completely different era now uh, where uh, we are able to target. And it's not just about having targeted therapies, but it's about giving those targeted therapies to the right patient. And in those cases, we actually see very dramatic responses. And I, I want to give you an example of a trial that I, this is going to be a little bit uh, uh, controversial on the podcast, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, the trial, uh, the IRIS trial for chronic myelogenous leukemia, uh, which got imatinib approved uh, for chronic myelogenous leukemia, not only did imatinib make sense because it was a BCR able inhibitor, um, but um, at the time, uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia was a death sentence. Um, everybody died in three and four years. It was inevitable. Uh, the best treatment was interferon and ARC. And um, the, you got complete cytogenetic responses in something like 10 or 15% of patients. And it was um, a lot of side effects. And Matnib, from the early trials, we already knew that if you gave it to newly diagnosed patients, almost everybody responded, it was near 100%. And uh, then uh, in order to prove um, that it worked better, um, patients were randomized to imatinib versus interferon ERASI. Um, I would argue, and that got uh, imatinib approved, but I would argue that that trial was unethical. Uh, patients literally begged to be moved onto the imatinib arm. Um, they were allowed to move onto the imatinib arm if they had, they knew this, they talked to each other, if they had excessive toxicity from interferon and ERAC. And so um, they would magnify their toxicity. And I remember going to a talk and hearing one of the nurses on the trial say, we know that they're magnifying it. We don't let them get away with that. Just think about if you're a patient sitting there and your life literally depends on getting a matinib, and if the difference is near a hundred percent response rate versus fourteen percent, why do we? Why did we ever do a randomized trial? How is that viewed as ethical? So there is probably a threshold where you could say something, you know, a response rate of forty versus fifty percent but not a response rate of 15, 10 to 15% versus 90%. And by the way, we know now that with a matinib, 
and uh, second and third generation inhibitors, these patients now have a near normal life expectancy. I don't think we should ever do that to patients again. And uh, that's why I'm not against randomized controlled trials, but we have to have equipoise and it cannot be pretend equipoise when we say, as we did for the IRIS trial, well, maybe a response rate of 90% isn't really different than a response rate of 15%. That's not reality. We all knew that that was different. That's where I feel that um, it. we could ask, what is that threshold? But, but there is a threshold beyond which I don't think um, it's ethical to do these trials anymore. Thoughts, uh, I mean, is there a threshold? Do you agree that it's like an, because I yeah. think I, I agree with the, the imatinib is rather an extreme example because it's really just worked like magic, honestly. I, I, I actually was a fellow, I enrolled patients on the STI-571 array at the time that drug was, and um, I, I just couldn't believe it, uh, you know, in terms of the marrow and the blood clearance and all of this. But uh, your thoughts on Chris and Ray's comment, I'm going to circle back to Chris to so have him respond. As Chris mentioned, uh, the word standard of care. Again, let's take a step back, you know, randomized to standard of care. So what is standard of care? You know, I hear, you know, again, that is, you know, for many, many cancers in cancer, I still believe personally that we don't have a standard of care. Standard of care is probably when we cure the patient 100%, then it is standard of care. So there's evidence-based standard of care guidelines, these pathways are promulgated by a variety of organizations and they are there to emphasize consistency so that like the ACLS or BLS algorithms, every patient gets uh, you know, standard care across the board. Departure from these pathways or guidelines, you know, may, you know, the insurance may not want to pay or sometimes the physicians are legally liable if they you know, deviate from this. Yet the standard of care oncology treatments in many cancers are associated with over 90% of mortality at two years for many metastatic cancers. And again, take for instance, pancreatic cancer and glioblastoma, right? In the, the standard of care treatments for these two cancers, 90% uh, of patients are not alive in two years after diagnosis. So importantly, in their present rendition, the standard of care treatment by virtue of the emphasis of uniformity of management are in fact quite the opposite or antithetical to the concept of precision oncology, which actually requires customization and personalization of therapy. Indeed, in the last two decades, we've learned more about oncology. We have better drugs. We have so many good drugs against cancer. And the, you know, what we have seen so far until 2023 is still scratching the tip of the iceberg. AI is going to make better drugs for us customized to the patient's unique individual tumor type. So again, in order to precisely target the tumor, one must apply these medicines that impact the tumor's distinct alterations and requires customized treatment, which is completely different uh, from a treatment to an average standard of care patient in a randomized clinical trial. I think we need to think about, you know, what we've learned in the last two decades uh, in molecular oncology We've come a long, long way. We still have a long way to go. But I think 
you know, for most cases in precision oncology, randomized studies may not be a good fit. You know, it's a good point, Chris. I'd like you to respond to these two issues pertaining to the example of CML, but also I think the standard of care comment that Vivek brings is, is pretty interesting because, I mean, you could make an argument. I'm just throwing this something like, let's say there's a standard of care of therapy X that we use for a particular disease. Could it be standard of care because we just, didn't know any better? I mean, is a response rate of 25% and a PFS of four months standard of care because that's really all we have? I mean, anyway, you can uh, please respond to both of them. So, you know, a couple points in response. First of all, I, I think we can agree that imatinib for CML, just like BEP for testicular cancer, are, are outliers. They're clear outliers. And I think that we would find agreement that if you see a drug that looks so promising, we can probably question to what extent we need comparative studies. But again, those are exceptions. I mean, I've been practicing oncology not nearly as long as, uh, you know, at least two of the members on this discussion, but I've been, you know, in this field for 20 years and I can count a handful, probably on two hands, the number of drugs that really have been game changers. And so I think if we just take a step back for a moment, what do we know, um, you know, at, at the really big picture level of where we want to go in oncology, what do patients care about? They want to live longer lives and they want to have better quality of life. So I think the starting point is we need to be able to look at our patients and tell them in good faith that our treatments can help them live longer and or improve their quality of life. And if we don't measure those things, we can't say that to them yet. We put them through significant toxicity, clinical side effects, financial toxicity, and something that's very important in the last six or 12 months of life, which is time toxicity, which is the amount of time they might invest when time is very precious, pursuing treatments that actually might not help them live any longer. So I, I think you know that that's a starting point. The next point to consider and to, to maybe back up, I guess I, I'm coming across maybe as maybe a, a, a sober voice um, of less enthusiasm for where we're going in cancer medicines. If we look at FDA approvals for new cancer medicines, first of all, most cancer medicines um, are approved now with no proven uh, increase in overall survival or quality of life. They are approved based on progression-free survival, which we are learning more and more is often not a valid surrogate for what matters to patients. So let's put that out there that we often don't know if these drugs help people live longer or better. But even when we do, and our group has done this and it's been replicated by others, even when you look at these drugs in the modern era, we've just looked at every randomized trial in the last 10 years in oncology of cancer medicines, even amongst those trials with a statistically significant improvement in overall survival, the median gain is three months. And that's sobering. You know, and and we're we're not doing a good enough job for our patients. And I think we need to go back to the drawing board. I would recognize that within that portfolio of drugs over the last 10 years, there have been a handful of game changers, but I believe they're the exception floating in a sea of pretty mediocre drugs. And so I don't think that we're ready or we're nowhere near the point, I think, where we can be so confident in response rate and tumor measurements on a CAT scan that we can just start using this in the real world um, without comparative data. Vivek uh, takes us into the surrogate uh, yeah. surrogacy. So maybe I'd like you to respond to that because you 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 led several trials that led to FDA approvals. Absolutely, I think the, the extended survival of three months, the the so so me two drugs, all those most of almost all of the drugs uh, were were because of randomized studies. So randomized studies have given us me two drugs and useless drugs with modest modest clinical benefit. So, you know, you can refer to a recent paper in Nature Medicine 
where, you know, together with uh, academic colleagues and FDA colleagues, we looked into the accelerated approval program for precision medicine drugs. So since 1992, we, there have been 42 accelerated approvals in precision oncology. So accelerated approval, how do we define accelerated approval of precision oncology is that they were defined as unique uh, drug indication pairings that target a specific alteration such as EGFR or a population of tumors containing a specific alteration like a you know, tuberous sclerosis one, two genes. So most of these accelerated approvals were based on overall response rate that you call a surrogate endpoint. You know, again, for me, I would probably say that as an intermediate endpoint, I, I, I don't like personally the word surrogate endpoint. The median objective response rate, overall response rate for each of these drugs was 53%. So far, among the 42 drugs that have been approved in an accelerated approval manner in, for precision oncology, no drug has been withdrawn. The early clinical benefit uh, predicted at the time of accelerated approval has been verified for more than 50% of the patients. So the traditional approval was granted around three years after the accelerated approval program. And you know almost all the drugs that have been granted uh, accelerated approval before 2018 have been granted uh, you know, timely verification of clinical benefit and have been granted a full approval. So in precision oncology era, uh, you know, maybe one uh, exception, I, I, I have to say in accelerated approval program, there was one exception called Jeftinib, which received an accelerated approval. But the accelerated approval was based on an all-comer population. So it was withdrawn because it could, they couldn't confirm the benefit. Subsequently, they confirmed the you know, benefit of Jeftinib in EGFR mutant patients. So in biomarker selected population, you know, we see response rates when the drug is matched to therapy. In biomarker selected population, in fact, if you compare a, bio, a common, you know, common biomarker, if you randomize a common biomarker, say, that has a prevalence of, say, 30% in lung cancer, you can get the drug approved based on randomized study with, versus placebo that may include 70% of patients who do not have that biomarker. So the Me Too drugs and the modest response rate drugs so far have been definitely been because of, uh, you know, uh, randomized clinical trials, like regorafenib is a prime example, regorafenib or Lancet, it provides the gift of time to many, many patients. But unfortunately, the randomized studies with, you know, placebo or standard of care, the bar was so low that these Me Too drugs were approved. So in the precision oncology era, you know, what we would say is when we match a patient to a targeted therapy that have a higher response rate, I don't think so we need randomized studies, especially with the customized and better medicines that we have in 2023. But Ray, Ray in, in fairness, what Chris is saying, something that at least resonates for me as the moderator, what he's saying, what matters to patients, you have to be able to tell the patient they're going to live longer. If they're not going to live longer, they're going to live better. So they are going to have good quality of life. Uh, I mean, and if you're unable, you know, they probably care less whether the tumor shrinks two centimeters or one centimeter. I mean, so I think, how do you reconcile this uh, in the era of surrogate endpoints and the FDA approving a drug every one to two weeks? 
No, I think it's a very important point, and um, I, uh, I I'm actually I'm going to uh, agree with uh, Vivek uh, on uh, on some of the points that he made here. Um, I, I think randomized trials are the ones in oncology that have actually been permissive uh, for mediocre improvements uh, because what they allow is drugs with very marginal improvements um, anywhere from two weeks to uh, two months uh, in a randomized trial without knowing which patients may benefit from the drug and which may, patients may actually be harmed from the drug. They allow those drugs to go. Um, they allow those drugs to go forward. And what we really want is um, drugs that make such significant improvements that they don't need a randomized trial or a randomized trial becomes unethical. And furthermore, just to say a couple more controversial things, I think at least in solid tumor oncology, we stick to drugs that have been proven and proven to improve survival in randomized trials. Um, that if you look at it as a patient, I've had patients that almost when when they begin to read about what these drugs really do for them, they almost can't believe that the FDA would approve them. And I'm going to use the example of uh, pancreatic cancer. The initial approvals of gemcitabine, where the response rates are below five percent, um, and where still today, even with what we call improvements in pancreatic cancer, 90% uh, of those patients are dead at two years. Um, the same with uh, glioblastoma. It's my other favorite disease. Um, temozolomide is the standard of care, and 90% of people are dead um, at two years. And it's a pretty, not a nice death either. We we need to get away from these drugs. These should not be standard of care. They shouldn't, even if they uh, won in a randomized controlled trial and they improved survival, I would argue that we should just abandon them and start all over again. That treatment is so bad. In fact, I came, I was initially a hematologist and that's exactly what the hematologists did. And I think why they were able to improve survival even before we had all these uh, new targeted immunotherapy drugs, the hematologists wanted to cure patients. It was a completely different mentality. Drugs that gave you 10% survival at two years, even if it improves survival in a randomized controlled trial, the hematologists in that era said, no, that's not a standard of care. We're just gonna drop that. That's, that's, that's the drug that you don't want to get. And I would argue that there are plenty of patients that would say, if they really understood that our standard of care that improves survival means that you are have a 90% chance of being dead at two years, would say, give me anything but that standard of care, because I already know that where that standard of care is going to lead. So give me something else. Give me something new. Um, so again, I think with the newer therapies, we can visually see these response rates are 50 to 80%. They're not marginal response rates. And we can see our patients living longer. And not only that, but they're less toxic than our older therapies. So I think... Um, uh, for me, for these um, types of new therapies where we're seeing 
pretty dramatic movement forward. We we don't want randomized controlled trials. We don't want it to take another five years to get these drugs uh, to patients. We want to get these drugs to patients as quickly as possible. And we want to move away from standard of care where in a lot of solid tumors, standard of care means um, in two years, you're probably going to die. Well, pancreas cancer is something I know a lot about. And I would agree, we have a long way to go in that disease, like many other diseases. But I think we need to remember that the clinical trials that gave us um, fulfirinox and gemcitabine, paclitaxel, uh, you know, as marginal as those therapies might be, they're the best and they represent dozens and dozens of other therapeutic compounds that came down the pipeline that some teams of investigators also strongly believed in. So, you know, they represent a lot of work and a lot of time. And I, I, I keep coming back to this concept of kind of, you know, scientific humility. And the reason in a scientific experiment, it's called the null hypothesis is because most of the time, we're not as clever as we think we are. And so I, I'm, I'm just very cautious about the idea that we can know so much about biology and that tumor shrinkage, we can be so convinced um, that we can just skip the evidence pyramid and start giving treatments to patients. And I mean, along those lines, um, the- But, but Chris, but Chris yeah. sorry to interrupt. I think what Ray was saying, just to, just to make sure I, if I remember correctly, I want to make sure you comment on that. What you're saying is sometimes the standard of care is so damn crappy that to say I need to randomize into the standard of care, which is a standard of care because we just don't have anything better and it's just pretty darn awful. What you're saying is if, a, if you tell a patient, these are the stats of the standard of care, they, as a patient, they may not really feel comfortable that that's what they want. They may not feel comfortable being randomized. I think that's the, the issue. Listen, I, I hear that, but I just don't think we could look at the patient and give them any indication that this new shiny molecule in our pocket, that we're, we can be so convinced it's going to be better. Remember, to get to Fulfirinox, our predecessors had hundreds of other shiny new medicines in their pockets, and they were even worse than Fulfirinox. So we can equally do harm. And I mean, if you know, if we just want to talk about the response rate issue too, if we become overly focused on these tumor measurements, we can actually... The, the knife cuts both ways and we could miss out on drugs like ipilimumab. If we'd only looked at response rates and PFS and melanoma and just done a single arm trial, we'd have thrown it out. We needed to wait and be patient in an RCT and see long-term improvement in overall survival. I guess the last point just before we turn to Vivek is I agree with Ray. We've gotten into a lot of trouble with marginal benefits because of clinical trials, but that's not the fault of the RCT as an, an entity. It's the fault of us. These are self-made problems that we've chosen when we've had low thresholds for small effect sizes and silly decisions that we as investigators in the community have allowed. So we don't need to reinvent the evidence pyramid. We need to use the tools we've been given by nature, which is randomization, and use it in a more intelligent fashion, recognizing, I completely agree with Ray and Vivek, there will be a handful of circumstances every few years where the drugs are just so promising, we can probably reconsider, do we really need comparative data? Vivek? Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, giving the example for pancreatic cancer, I recently had the same debate at ASCO GI. So patient walks in and we did a we do a molecular profile and we get a red fusion. So the red fusion, the current response rate for red fusion positive pancreatic cancer is 55%. I've personally taken care of patients, several patients with pancreatic cancer and red fusions are doing phenomenally well. 
and you know who progressed on Folfox and Folfirinox and the standard of care therapies. And the debate was whether, because now the drugs are approved in the, in the relapsed refractory population, when they would give, give it. And the GI medical oncologist mentioned that they would use Folfirinox. The patient has to fail a Folfirinox and, and then they should be using the selective RET inhibitor that still has a 55% response rate in the relapsed refractory setting. I completely agree to disagree that because you know we have these precision medicines in pancreatic cancer, and although we may not, you know, there might not be a randomized study in patients with pancreatic cancer. Given that the best we have is folfirinox, I would give the best treatment at the first line setting, at the front line setting, which is a RET inhibitor. Here we may not have the evidence, but we have the evidence in many many other solid tumors, including lung cancer. When the responses to genomically targeted therapies are much better in the frontline setting than when they relapse from chemotherapy. So here, you know, there wouldn't be any clinical equivoice, at, at, at least in my clinic, if they come and show up for a pancreatic cancer patient with a red fusion or an entract fusion, I would pro probably, definitely, if the insurance is able to approve, start them on a NTRAC inhibitor or a RET inhibitor. What do you think, Chris? Would you do that? Would you do that if it's real? Uh, actually, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't because I would not be able to look at my patient and tell them with certainty that treatment would help them live longer, uh, what their quality of life would be, what the unanticipated risks and consequences are. And I guess I would just say, I think the burden of proof is on you know the new technology. Let's do an RCT. Do an RCT, frontline pancreas cancer. Half of patients get standard fulfirinox chemotherapy. The other half get NGS and get a match therapeutic. And, and let's let the, the data tell us. I mean, you know, we, we don't need to necessarily argue about it. Let's just do an experiment and figure out. And maybe that is the path forward. But I don't think we should be waving our hands and making stuff up. Um, you know, I think there's a tool we should use it to test. Why can't Ray? Why Ray? Why can't we do a trial like this? Have like you know, fulfirinox versus you do NGS and you do the therapy based on NGS. Well, I think you could do the trial. The question is, um, some of us um, would see this as sacrificing patients in the same way um, that the IRIS trials sacrificed uh, uh, CML patients uh, to interferon and ROC. Let me go back and tell you, say something else that we learned from chronic myelogenous leukemia, um, that it, it's, uh, you know, having been a hematologist and then became an oncologist, um, I really learned a lot from the hematology field. Some things that never transferred well to solid tumors, not because they're not biologically important, but it's like two groups of investigators that are different. Um, one of the things that I hear is CML is fundamentally different. I don't believe that's true. I think that it's not the biology of CML that's different. It was the biology of the investigators that was different. <laughs> and um, no, I, I'm serious. Um, so if you look at CML, if you treat with a matinib in advanced CML, uh, accelerated or blast transformation, it's almost useless. The results are negligible. CML, imatinib had to be brought to newly diagnosed patients. When it was brought to newly diagnosed patients, the response rates are near 100%. The life expectancy is now normal. In solid tumors, I made the transfer in mid 
early mid-career to solid tumors, and I saw a whole new mentality. We keep on waiting until patients have failed everything. And then we give them these match therapies. And the miracle is that they sometimes actually work, but we didn't learn the lesson of CML. The dramatic change in CML was not just having a match therapy, but not waiting until the disease had evolved. We know that diseases evolve with time. And so blast transformation is metastatic cancer. We need to be treating at the onset. And every time we give a patient fulfirinox or gemabraxane, which I know works in some patients, but still 80 to 90% of these people are dead at two years. So I really think, and I've seen, you know, pancreatic cancer has improved, but not by a lot since I was a young person. Um, we need to give it up. We need to say, this is not the standard of what I want to see as improvement. And why not give the patient the choice? Say, we will give you something new. It's theoretical or we will give you the standard of care and statistically you have an 85% chance of being dead at two years. Which one do you want? I think a lot of patients will actually be shocked by the statistics, the true statistics, and ditto that for glioblastoma as well, as well as many other uh, solid tumors. So when we give patients, um, therapies that yes, they have improved survival, but not by much. We are also promoting um, evolution of the disease so that the targeted therapies will no longer work as well as they should if we treat it earlier when the only alteration present may be the retfusion, et cetera. And we already know that from CML. We actually know that from many hematologic um, disorders. So not only do I think it's ethical, I actually think if we on gave patients honestly what the statistics are, a lot of them would not choose to go with yeah. standard of care. I mean, I guess, yeah, Ray and I think disagree on this issue, uh, but we're Canadian, so we'll still be polite and friendly. Um, so uh, Nice, nice. I, I think it's how we frame it. And, you know, I've been thinking very deeply about PFS for, you know, well over a decade. And when I have honest discussions with patients in their second or third line therapy, and I say, you know, you progressed on our usual treatments. We now have a treatment that um, there's no proven benefit. It helps you live longer. There's no improvement in quality of life. These are the side effects. You're coming to the cancer center now once a week for this treatment. And um, what it does is on a CAT scan, it'll slow down tumor growth by two or three months. And when I speak very honestly and clearly um, with compassion to patients in that context, most of them look at me and say, why would I even want that treatment? So I, I think we agree that patients don't want marginal lousy treatments, but I don't think we would be in a position in good faith to tell patients that, you know, this is going to provide a radically different outcome. What we do know is maybe in some early phase trials, it shrinks cancer. And I, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves, recognizing there are exceptions here. I don't think we should keep coming back to the CML paradigm, because I think that's an outstanding one. Um, and we should be aware of those. But I, I think we need to be very careful about overpromising the potential precision oncology and recognize that science is hard. And most of the time we think we've got it right, we don't. And we've learned that over and over again in the history of medicine. Vivek. 
Yeah, I think here we completely disagree here because, you know, 2023, we have so much information about the cancer. I think the next generation cancer research practice model will need to overcome, as Dr. Kurzak uh, yeah, says, to overcome the tyranny of tradition. And we need to emphasize and precise personalized approach. So I used to believe that, you know, of course, uh, genomically targeted therapies work very well upfront. And I used to believe that immunotherapy would probably be reserved in the in the later lines of setting when there are unstable genomes. Again, to put a wrench into our theory, you know, there was this NEGM paper from uh, the neoadjuvant, uh, you know, PD-1 therapy, uh, right? Mismatch repair. So immunotherapy and genomically targeted therapy, when taken upfront in the neoadjuvant setting, we can cure patients, right? So what is standard of care for rectal cancer? You know, I'm not a GI oncology expert, but locally advanced rectal cancer, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, radiation followed by surgery, standard of care. And, you know, in these mismatch repair patients, you know, they gave just a monotherapy, a PD-1 in the context of metastatic disease. And they, you know, hypothesized in a single arm study without a randomized study, could be effective in patients with mismatch repair deficient locally advanced rectal cancer. 12 patients completed treatment and 12 out of 12 patients had a complete response. Again, I don't know if with just 12 patients with a complete response, of course, we need more data with uh, longer follow-up uh, to assess the duration of response. Here, I wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't want a randomized study. But yeah, Chris, maybe the question is, what scenario would you feel comfortable not doing an RCT? Because I, I think we could always give examples of powerful things. I mean, I was at the ESMO presentation with the, you know, when Dr. Chalabi presented this and I, I literally, my, you know, my mouth, my jaw dropped. I mean, I've never seen anything like this, but those are extremes. And I think we can all acknowledge that, right? I mean, I think what Chris is saying, you know, for the run of the mill, we don't see that. We don't, we're not seeing the CML. We're not seeing all of this. But are there scenarios where, Chris, you would be comfortable not doing an RCT? And the question to Vivek and Ray, are there scenarios where you would want to see an RCT? Let's reverse the position. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and you know, as Vivek said, time may show that uh, using immunotherapy and MSI, locally advanced rectal cancer, maybe that is the next imatinib. And, you know, once we have 50, 100, 200 patients treatment and we see this, maybe it will be. And so, but I, I think, you know, we, we've, we've probably commented on, I don't know, two, three or four of these transformational precision oncology agents. And, but those are littered with hundreds of other therapies in the last 10 or 20 years that have not been so beneficial. So we have to be careful if we say that for all of those other drugs, we're going to be so confident up front that we just start using them. And so I, I, I still think we have to be very careful. Um, I guess one other thought I'll just put out there, I'd be curious to hear Vivek and, and Ray's response is, let, let's carry through a thought experiment. Let's imagine uh, that at the end of this debate, the healthcare unfiltered universe decides that Kurzrock and Subaya won and, and Booth has been banished back to the wilderness of Canada. And so we abandon RCTs and oncology. Um, so then we start giving these shiny new medicines for each target that you know Vivek's lab and Ray's lab identify a target. Where do we go from there? So in two or three years, when we have another drug, what do we do to it? Do we add it? So then we've got two drugs 
and then three drugs and then four drugs or five drugs? Or we just start saying, well, the response rate in this cohort from Sweden was 80% and this cohort from California is 55%. This one must be better. At some point, this is going to catch up with us. And at some point, we're going to be we're not going to be so clever, we're going to be able to get away with comparing something in the future. So I just it's thought experiment thinking forward, how would this play out in reality? Right. So so um, we've already played that out in reality in a trial called iPredict that we initiated in 2015 at UCSD um, with the belief that um, in uh, advanced metastatic tumors, they're complicated. And uh, we've been very fortunate to get responses with single drugs. But what we really need is combinations of drugs that are matched to the patients. And so what we were able to show um, in uh, this trial that we published in Nature Medicine, um, and, and we published subsequent uh, parts of the trial as well, and we've shown this repeatedly, is that the um, higher the matching score, the more matched the patients were to the drugs or, or uh, the molecular milieu of the the patient, uh, the better the patient outcomes. And the less matched, the worse the outcomes were. And this was response rates, PFS, and overall survival, albeit not a randomized controlled trial. So ultimately, this isn't going to be about one drug. Um, this is going to be about, I believe, algorithms that decide the best confluence of drugs that match to an individual uh, patients' alterations. So this is a real departure from what we've done before, where we've tested individual drugs or individual combinations on lung cancer or breast cancer. What we're now, I think, going to move to is testing the power of algorithms to decide on what is the best individualized combination uh, for each patient. And what we will measure is how good an algorithm do we have? What is the outcome? And so that kind that solves the problem of adding additional drugs because we already need to add additional drugs. We recognize that already when we um, started the iPredict trial in 2015. And I, I think that's the end of one paradigm. Um, what is the best possible algorithm to decide on what is the combination of drugs that you need um, in order to get uh, the best outcome? And eventually, of course, this may be done by AI or machine learning. Uh, this was done uh, by um, collaborations that we had with the UCSD Supercomputer Center. But I think our algorithms were first generation. And I think that's where we're going. And again, I, I think that for some of our standard of care therapies, we really do need to be honest with patients. But being honest means as much as pancreatic cancer, how lousy it used to be, and that we see some responses with Furanox or Abraxane Gem, we need to tell patients, you have an 85% chance of being dead at two years. Do you want this therapy? I don't think most patients realize that they have an 85% chance of being dead. Or do you wanna try something completely different that might not help you at all, but at least give them that choice? So Ray, I'm glad that you said it might not help you at all, because I think one of the things, one of the arguments I had with Chris offline, this was not on tape, is 
he agrees, and Chris, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you agree that many of our standard therapies are lousy. What Chris contends, and I, and I see that, I see that point, is that we're unable to actually tell patients the magnitude of benefit with any degree of certainty, because that might sway a patient. For example, if you tell a patient you've got an 85% chance of dying within two years if you get that standard of care, and if you get my other treatment, I don't know it might work, but you may have an 87%, you may have an 80% chance of dying in, in two years. In other words, we're unable to have that intelligent conversation with the patient without the information. So Vivek, in order for you to tell the patient, you have to have something to say, and we don't have that stats unless you have a comparator. So I sympathize with Chris's point here because you really, how, what, what are you gonna tell the patient? So I completely agree with Chris here. So again, for our patient and for clinical practice, we definitely need high quality evidence, which has traditionally been achieved by randomized control trial. So randomized control trial have been the gold standard. I'll come to, you know, maybe after this, I'll talk about the gold. Dr. Kazrak has a joke about the gold and gold standard, uh, you know, for evidence generation. The problem with randomized control trial is not just in oncology, it's across all specialties in medicine. Conducting randomized control trials is not always feasible uh, in generating evidence in a timely manner. The cost of randomized studies is prohibitive. Every drug to be developed costs $1.5 to $3 billion. Many times RCTs, by the time they're designed and by the time they are reported, they become quickly outdated. And in some cases, very irrelevant to the current context because science moves forward quickly. In the field of cardiology alone, uh, you know, 30,000 randomized studies have not been completed owing to recruitment challenges. Many, many trials are being designed in isolation, in silos, which most of the questions remaining un unanswered. So the problem of not conducting RCTs and the problem with RCTs is not just in oncology, it's across the entire medicine. So most of the standard clinical care that we give our patients are without, you know, high quality evidence. So we need to evolve about uh, the trial designs and some of the trial design, you know, evolution, you know, we have now umbrella studies, basket studies, platform studies, and master ob observational studies. Platform studies are fantastic. They are a hybrid of basket studies and randomized control trials. In fact, the recovery study, uh, that was done for COVID-19 was, was a masterful study. It's a, it's a masterful lesson for us how quickly we can get results, results from a platform study. Uh, it has multiple arms. Immediately, they were able to say within two to three months in the onset of an unprecedented pandemic that Decadron works. Most importantly, they also found out that hydroxychloroquine does not work. Again, we need to be nimble. We need to be thinking uh, out of the box when designing better studies beyond randomized studies. Of course, randomized studies are important, gold standard. You know, one thing I, I just wanted to say is Dr. I remember, she may not remember, but Dr. Kazrak had a presentation maybe like 2009 or 10. Uh, she showed a picture, I think of uh, ferrous sulfate. Ferrous sulfate apparently was called fool's gold. It's yellow color misled many into believing that they had discovered gold. So again, the suggestion was that randomized control trial are often fool's gold, the gold standard, the fool's gold, 
are potentially deceptive and of limited value. Again, faulty conclusions can Boy, be. I, I gotta get Chris to answer to this. My goodness, limited value and deceptive. Chris, you got where's your sword, man? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I come back to the point that I think it's, you know, it's us, it's humans who have misused this very powerful tool. And so we shouldn't throw out the tool. We should be more intelligent in how we use it. And I, I, I really think, you know, if the precision oncology research community was serious about really changing the mind of the clinical community, they would run an RCT, first line pancreas, first line gastric, one of these tumors where I agree the standard of care is just not very good. And prove us that it works. And maybe it does. And that will transform things. But we shouldn't just be making stuff up. And, you know, just like this huge waste in clinical trials, you know, the global cancer pharmaceutical budget is about $150 billion per year. And it would blow the mind of the general public or cancer patients if we told them truthfully, and this is the truth, that a very large proportion, perhaps most of that allocation of resources is for medicines that do not help people live any longer or have improved quality of life. Like, I think we need to take a step back in the bigger space of cancer medicines and recognize that, you know, a lot of what we do actually doesn't help patients. And that comes from the cytotoxic area, the hormonal. I would argue it's equally problematic in the targeted and era of precision oncology. And I think we will get there, but I, I really don't think we're ready to throw out RCTs. So I would I would disagree here mainly because, you know, we know how Fulfirinox performs in pancreatic cancer, frontline, second line, third line. We can use that as a synthetic control arm for our studies, for our single arm studies. You know, nothing magical is going to happen with Fulfirinox in a patient with enteric fusion or red fusion. So if we have a 10 patients, say 10 to 20 patients with red fusion or enteric fusion who have a response rate of over 50% and who are living for more than four to five years, you don't need a randomized study here to randomize to Fulfirinox to show that. So again, we got to be thoughtful and in, nimble in our approaches and modify our uh, thinking uh, when we think about uh, studies, especially for these cancers. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so um, I, I'm going to agree with Chris um, on what he said, that a lot of what we do for patients is actually not very useful. But a lot of that, but here is where we depart from each other. A lot of that was born out of randomized controlled trials. And I'm I'm picking on pancreatic cancer again, um, even uh, and, and glioblastoma, because they're my favorite things to pick on. Um, it was randomized controlled trials that brought us abraxane, gemcitabine, and fulfirinox. And yes, it was, they're better than what it used to be, but they're awfully mediocre. And now it's very hard to say, you know what, this is mediocre enough that maybe we should just discard it and start again, because that's what the hematologist did. That's where it was such a shock to me to move from hematology to solid tumors. Hematology, we're not curing 90% of people, forget it. I don't care what a randomized controlled trial showed, that therapy's not for us. We're, we wanna cure people. I came into the solid tumor early mid-career, and all of a sudden we're happy if the patient has an improved survival of three weeks. Um, this is a complete, and, and, and ditto temozolomide uh, for glioblastoma. And the resistance to saying, 
let's try something different in these patients. Let's not give them temozolomide. Um, every brain specialist that I talk to says, no, you can't do that because this improves survival. And they're not looking at it the way a patient would look at it. 90% of these people are dead at two years. So we're actually agreeing that we have a lot of therapies that I think are really mediocre, but unfortunately, I think it's randomized controlled trials that brought us a lot of those mediocre therapies and make us stick to them because we have proof that they improve survival. We're just not being honest with patients with how much they improve survival or what their ultimate outcome uh, really is. And I think, Chris, uh, I'm, I'd like you to respond to this. And I know we're we're getting a little bit late. I'd like to wrap up in a little bit. But I, I do I do think that in the general oncology community, <clears throat> I'm presuming, and I don't know actually, but I'm assuming a patient with pancreas cancer, metastatic disease comes into a community oncologist somewhere and says, you know, that's a disease. I think they will say, okay, you know, this is the treatment, it's fulfirinox or gemabraxane. And and I, I don't know how much they go into the detail of how, uh, you know, unsatisfactory that therapy you both are, you all are confusing you because I'm seeing all of the sides together. I can't really side with anyone. So Chris, help me out. What do I, how do I, how should I think about this? Well, I, I think there's some, probably some universal truths and some areas of agreement here. I think we would agree that uh, we need to do better and most cancer medicines are pretty marginal. I think we would agree that uh, there are problems with the RCTs that need to be fixed. Um, I think we might have divergent views on how frequently we need to use RCTs. One of the problems we, that would arise if we abandoned RCTs is there's not just going to be one group working on an innovative strategy, precision oncology for pancreas cancer in, you know, Wisconsin, San Diego, or in Houston. There's going to be numerous groups. And then, then what do we do? Ultimately, someone's going to have to figure this out one day, or it's going to be a real mess for the clinician in a regular hospital in the real world. So uh, I, I think I don't think we're gonna be able to avoid some kind of comparative study. I think that the other area that I do a lot of work in is the use of real world data. And this is one of these strange phenomena where for the first 10 years of my career, I had to justify to people why it was important to use real world data to understand access, quality, disparities, and outcomes. And now I find myself having to tell people to calm down with real world data because we cannot and we should not use it to replace RCTs because it's been shown over and over again to be a flawed substitute. So I, I think sometimes we get caught up in the excitement of, you know, a shiny new methodology or innovation. We have to remember that as lousy as Fulfirinox and Gemabraxane are, we discarded hundreds of other therapies along the way because they didn't pan out in clinical trials. And if we didn't do those trials, the pancreas cancer landscape would be littered with dozens and dozens of drugs that are even less effective than our current standards. What I would like to do, I would like to go around and <clears throat> and have maybe closing statements for each one, because I, I do think you agree on certain things. I still see significant divergent views. Um, so uh, we start with you, Vivek. What are your what is your closing statement? The floor is yours. And that's your opportunity to convince Chris that he will never should ever should never conduct an RCT. So the current evidence-based medicine pyramid where the RCT sits on top, right? Uh, I can share that paper with you where my, my thought was, it just represents the tip of the iceberg. It provides at best shallow evidence 
for the patient in front of us. We are moving towards an era of deep medicine. Again, uh, you, know, you said, you just mentioned that our, our, our real world data is not panning out in the last decade. No, because we didn't have the models to extract unstructured data from real world data. Today, we have better large language models and AI that can probably pick up unstructured data much, much better than the software programs that we had a year ago, or even, you know, uh, even months ago. So the success of future, you know, cancer treatment, precision oncology, depends upon a fundamental transformation in which physicians, patients think, in which trials are designed, conducted, monitored, adapt, adapt. We have to evolve. The, the status quo model of RCTs is unsustainable. We all need to get together and think about, you know, a, a different strategy because most of the RCTs have given us modest drugs as best. We need personalized, pragmatic, patient participatory paradigm changing studies. Again, uh, you know, the standard of care, like real world data and clinical trials are viewed differently. However, the overarching goal for all of us is to improve our patients. I think we should view it, view it together. I think COVID pandemic has given us some ideas about how we can improve upon the trial designs. Beyond an ad hoc, all hands on deck, you know, creative flash of a genius methodology in COVID, I think we need to have, uh, you know, an operation warp speed or a moonshot for every cancer with clearly defined goals so that we can personalize and customize uh, you know, precision medicine. The goal is to offer the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And I stick to the point that we don't need RCTs to get there. Chris, your closing statement, and maybe you can convince Vivek how wrong he is. Um, I guess uh, I'll push back and say that I think that you know the four of us uh, with a, a clinical trial sponsored by uh, uh, healthcare unfiltered, I, I honestly think, let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's run an RCT, first-line pancreas. I would enroll patients on that. I would go on that study if I was a patient. Let's see, does this new approach offer better outcomes? I think let's just test it. I mean, that's that's the, the way that science works. Um, I think we are shortchanging our patients if we skip that step. I think at the end of the day, as an investigator, but most importantly, as a clinician, I want to be able to look at my patient and tell them that the treatment I'm offering will help them live a longer life with improved quality of life. And there will be circumstances where I don't have RCT data, but I'm gonna to wanna to be very, very convinced that the toxic therapy I'm about to prescribe to them is actually truly gonna help them. And I remain unconvinced that in most contexts, uncontrolled data can get us there. Well, Ray, we've got uh, two divergent views here and they're not convinced with each other. Maybe you could be the peacemaker. Well, I don't think I'm going to be the peacemaker, but um, I do think that I will say that I do think that randomized controlled trials have an important place in the world. And uh, Vivek and I may differ on this, but I actually think in pandemics where you're treating um, many healthy people, otherwise healthy people, that would be a place where randomized controlled trials are actually very important. Uh, but for patients with lethal diseases, um, I think that... Um, 
uh, randomized control trials look for marginal benefit by definition, uh, where you really cannot uh, tell the difference between the arms. And what we want to see is dramatic benefit. Uh, furthermore, um, having led many clinical trials, clinical trials do not reflect the real world. 90 to 95% of patients are not eligible for a clinical trial. There are probably, if you look all the criteria, uh, criteria, inclusion and exclusion, probably 150 criteria for every patient uh, to get on a clinical trial. Those are not real world patients. And that's one of the reasons I think that real world data actually will work out very well. The question is, if the real world data and the randomized trial gives you a different result, which one is actually true? I'm going to put my money on the real world data uh, because um, in the real world, we see patients that have heart disease and that kidney disease and liver disease and that are frail and that are old. And the patients that get on the randomized control trial created by pharma so that the patients are perfect. And that doesn't really tell us what is going to happen to those patients um, in the real world of treating them. The patients on the pancreatic cancer trials don't look anything like the pancreatic cancer patients that I see in the clinic every day. And that's why I think some of those benefits um, may be very marginal uh, for those patients. So I actually think there is a place for randomized controlled trials where the benefits are marginal. But if we see dramatic benefits and we see it in real world type patients, um, I don't think we should be doing a randomized trial at that point. You know, Chris, there is a point though. I'll I'm going to leave the last word for you, maybe unless you say something very provocative, but there is a, there is a point that RCT is could be a little bit too biased, frankly. I mean, you're really enrolling the fittest of the fit into these trials, and and you could make an argument that may not represent what you're seeing in your practice. Yeah, so look, I don't know a lot about precision oncology or translational medicine, but one thing I know a heck of a lot about is using real-world data. And what I can tell you is I completely agree with Ray. Uh, you know, our group and others have, have shown over and over again the concept of the efficacy to effectiveness gap. Outcomes and benefits observed in clinical trials are always inferior in the real world, where patients are older, sicker, with more comorbid conditions. Um, but again, that speaks to how we use RCTs, and we should be more pragmatic in enrolling real-world patients. We can fix those eligibility criteria. What I have found, and you know, I've written about this extensively and published, uh, and other groups have as well, is that using real-world data to assess treatment effectiveness, treatment A versus treatment B, is no better than a coin flip about whether we'll give you the right answer. It is heavily confounded. There are numerous, numerous methodologic pitfalls. And in fact, it can be very, very dangerous. And we've written about this with editorials in our major journals outlining where real world data can actually give dangerous information about does a treatment provide benefit in uh, in routine practice. So I think we do have to be very careful. We need to enroll patients that represent the real world, but we don't need to abandon the RCT because if we start going on a fishing expedition with real world data, we will just as likely get the wrong answer as we get the right one. Well, this was a lot of fun. I think uh, I'm not sure anybody convinced anybody with anything, which means I need to tape another podcast in this in several months. Uh, all I could say is that I think hopefully listeners understood both views, but um, 
I do think it was important to have this dialogue. Uh, I really do. I, is there anything I should have asked that I completely forgot or missed? No, this yeah. has been fun. Thanks, everyone. Lots of fun. I think right, the four thanks. of us, we're going to launch that pancreas trial now, and then Ray and Vivek can convince me that they're right. Yes. I think it was a, I think he did a great job on bringing the four of us together and um I uh, really enjoyed hearing uh Chris's point of views of course I enjoyed hearing Vivek's too but we have very similar point of views but it's good to hear um somebody be so articulate uh about a point of view that is different so thank you Thank That's you, what I like Thank about you, Chris. Uh, you actually said, indeed, yeah. he's very articulate in expressing his views. So, uh, Dr. Subaya, Dr. Kurzrak, and Dr. Booth, thank you so much for coming in healthcare fil and filtered and filtered and trusting me with your free time or, you know, again, artificial free time to come on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for dialing in and for being on my podcast and for listening. Don't forget to let me know if you really want to get the t-shirt, the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t-shirt. Don't forget to check out my website, shadinabhan.com and consider sparing some time reading my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. If you like what you read, rate it on Amazon or any other outlet. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and let your friends and colleagues know about the show. And before I let you go, I leave you with something that was stated by Buddha. Three things cannot be long hidden. The sun, the moon, and the truth. Until next time.